we talk about this season being the season of Advent, and Christians and churches around the world have seen the wisdom in setting aside the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to reflect more deeply on what it means to think about how Jesus became human for us and for our salvation. That word Advent simply means the coming or arrival of something or someone that is important or worthy of note. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is someone worthy of note. He came for us and for our salvation. But it's interesting in this verse that John writes, he said, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We're going to call our study today, Jesus is the reason for the season, and so is the evil one. Now we're not saying that Jesus and the evil one are in the same category, that we're celebrating the evil one in any stretch of the imagination. But to understand the reason why Christ came is to understand that he came to undo and destroy the works of the devil. That's exactly what he says here. If you look at this verse, I wonder how that strikes you. I know we live in a day where a lot of people would just say, come on, man, the devil, really? You really believe that? You want us educated people to believe in the existence of the devil? It's interesting. YouGov survey asked the question about what Americans believe about demons. And 22% said he definitely exists, or demons definitely exist. And 24% said they probably exist. So somewhere around 46% of folks say either the evil one, demons definitely exist, or probably exist. Whenever I think on this topic, I always have that um, kind of that characterization come to mind about the devil that was found for us in, oh brother, where art thou? You remember this time when Ulysses Everett McGill was asked by his friend Pete, what does the devil look like? And he said, well, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail, and he carries a hay fork. <laughs> I love that. And when many people think of the existence of the devil or the idea of the devil, this is what they have in mind. And it is a characterization. And if that's our characterization, we need to kind of get that out of our head of someone who is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail and carrying a, a pitchfork. You see, when you follow Jesus, you're going to see that he will ask us to sophisticate our understanding of all kinds of things, including God, ourselves, and evil, and especially the one that's described in Scripture as the evil one. As people who are interested in what Jesus has to say, as people who are interested in bringing our lives in line and following him, we need to believe the things that Jesus believed. And if you struggle to get your mind wrapped around this entity called the devil, and maybe you struggle to believe whether he exists, let me tell you, no one in Scripture talked about the devil more than Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we believe he has more spiritual insight than all of us put together. So you may have questions about that, but let me just invite you to take Jesus seriously because he took the existence of the evil one seriously. Let me just give a brief rundown of what I might call Demonology 101. Demons, according to the scripture, are fallen angels, and Satan is the leader of these fallen angels that are described as his angels. The word Satan itself it simply means the adversary. You could actually call him the Satan, the accuser. Satan's tactics involve lies and deception. Satan leads the whole world astray. And Satan hates humanity because he hates God. And humans bear the image of God. 
And so as we get ready to dive into this and unpack it a little bit, let me just say this. The evil in this world is not just the sum total of all human actions. I know when we see news reports about the terrible things that humans do to one another, it's, it's easy just to confine that to some bad apples. But the scripture would have us know, and Jesus would have us know, that there are the existence of malevolent spirits that are inspiring and stirring up and seeking to bring out the very worst of humanity. So as you think about what goes on in the world and some of the horrible things that happen, for example, in wars, things like human trafficking, is it just possible that there is the existence of, of what are called evil or malevolent spirits? Jesus is going to invite us to take this seriously. This passage that we're looking at today tells us that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So as we seek to understand what Jesus taught and what his disciples wanted us to believe about this, John himself places the story of the evil one in the context of a story. He says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And of course he's thinking here the beginning of this story that we call human life. We go back to the very beginning of the scriptures. We read these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When we go back to the scriptural story, this is the setup. This is what's going on. This is God's original design for humans to rule this world under the direction of God. He partnered with humanity and called them to exercise dominion, to bring out the best that this creation has to offer and offer it back to the Lord as an offering. As the story continues, God creates two very important human beings, Adam and Eve. And he places them in this place called the Garden of Eden. And they are to serve as representatives for humanity. They are to serve as priests before God. And they are to fill this earth. And it's at this point that the introduction of another entity emerges in the story. Genesis 3 tells us this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God had given them this beautiful garden, telling them they could eat from any tree except for one, the, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And so here we're told a serpent that's more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made came to Eve and said, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, or in the garden. So someone says, well, wait a second here, a talking snake? You've got to be kidding me. You can't expect us to take this seriously. This sounds more like Cobb from the Jungle Book. When you think about the Jungle Book and you remember that snake that talked, it kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? But I want to take just a deep dive with us for just a second and ask that there might not be something more going on behind the scenes here. That word serpent in the Hebrew, can mean, as a noun, a serpent. It's the, it's the general word for a snake. But used as a verb, it can also mean, these three 
Hebrew root letters, to divine. That is to, to speak for divine beings. But it can also be used to describe something that is shining. In fact, this verb is, or the root word of this is often used to describe angels in the scripture. What's interesting is there is a, a translation of the Bible called the International Standard Version that actually uses, instead of the word serpent, the word the shining one. It says, now the shining one was more clever than any animal of the field that the Lord God had made. Isn't that interesting? That word has many associations with it. And some scholars believe this is intentional. There's a triple entendre here that is meant to communicate certain things. There's a serpent. There's one who speaks on behalf of divine beings, who's also a shining one. Now let me just, if I can, just take us on a little detour here for a second to talk about an illustration from pop culture. Now some of you all have read um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and you know that there are four houses that students get divided into as they go to this school. And one of them is called Slytherin which just sounds kind of sketchy, right? <laughs> and in fact, there's a sorting hat that divides students between them, and at one point the talking hat, the sorting hat said, perhaps in Slytherin you'll make your real friends. Those cunning folks use any means to achieve their ends. What's interesting is that the founder of the house of Slytherin was Salazar Slytherin. If you say that name, Salazar Slytherin, what does it sound like? And of course, there's Severus Snape. And in these names, there's three S's, and it makes just a sound as you say them. These names suggest serpentine or sinister characters are connected to this house. That's an example of modern-day literature that's kind of using um, this, this idea to communicate something very important. Now, going back to the, the story of the Garden of Eden, it's interesting, the book of Ezekiel calls the Garden of Eden, the, the Garden of God, the Holy Mountain of God. And in Ezekiel 28, there's this, this prophetic woe that is spoken against the king of Tyre. And it's interesting as you read it, there's some things that kind of emerge that can no way be described as the king of Tyre. And it's like the king of Tyre has this force, this evil sinister force that's working behind him. And the prophet speaks through this and says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Here's a description of this sinister, evil entity working and animating the king of Tyre. And it describes him as being in the Garden of Eden, in God's holy mountain. It describes him as being a cherub of God. That's a description of an angel. I came across this graphic here, this piece of artwork, that tries to capture not just simply the element of a snake, but the elephant of an entity. Did I say elephant? Why did I say that? the element of an evil one um, at work here. And so we pick up the story again. It says, Now the serpent, or the shining one, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit 
from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent or shining one said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What a perfect description of humanity, by the way. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. We do that not only with God, but with one another. We're, we have this fear that if people saw us like we really are, they would reject us. The text continues. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the shining one, deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So you see here the masterwork of the evil one. You see here how through deception and through lies, this one called the devil, this shining one, this deceiver, deceived mankind. And they were banished. And so John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. As we think about this, and we think about what ways did Jesus destroy the works of the devil, I want us to apply this just in, in three different ways. The first implication is this. Christ destroyed the work of the devil by becoming embodied truth. There's an interesting place in the Gospel of John where some of Jesus' adversaries are having this debate with him. They're going back and forth. And they, they were accusing Jesus, and Jesus responded to them by saying this, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you remember from that passage we just read in Genesis 3, how God talked about the seed or the offspring of the serpent? And here Jesus tells these religious leaders that they 
are that offspring of the evil one. You're, you belong to your father, the devil. But notice that Jesus says that there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. This is, this is just what he does. He can't speak truth. He just, he just lies and lies and lies. And in fact, John said in the book of Revelation, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Here John describes Satan, the Satan, the accuser, the devil, not just simply as a serpent, but here as a great dragon, and he leads the whole world astray. There's this interesting passage in the book of Psalms where the psalmist said, in my alarm I said, everyone is a liar. You ever feel like that sometimes? There just seems to be no one you can trust anymore. Everyone self-interested and, and we just speak so easily lies, right? When we do that, the devil is pleased. The scripture calls living in such a world this present darkness. And it was in this present darkness that Jesus appeared for us. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he said. In contrast to the evil one who trades in lies, Jesus himself comes and trades in truth, but not just simply trades in truth. He is the truth. Jesus is the very center of reality. He is the most defining truth there is in the universe. Can you see him? It's interesting, when Pilate stood before Jesus, he asked him this question. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? The very embodiment of truth was standing before Pilate. And Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who listens to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate couldn't see him. My friends, when we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be different kinds of human beings. The life of Jesus is at work in us. And so we put off telling lies. It no longer tastes right in our mouth. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Part of the ways that Jesus destroys the works of the devil is not just simply in coming and being the embodiment of truth, but in creating people like you and me to walk after him. We become embodied truth as well. We become truth tellers. We become people who want to speak the truth. So Christ destroyed the work of the devil by becoming embodied truth. Here's another implication. Christ destroyed the work of the devil, allowing death to feast on him. Remember the curse. God told Adam and Eve, when you, if you were to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. In Hebrew, the word dies is doubled. You will die, die. It's a way of emphasizing. Dying, you will die. Scripture tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In that context, it meant the cross. The Scripture tells us that Christ took 
that deeper death, that spiritual death that separated us from God. And he took it upon himself when he died on the cross. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness covered the earth. He became that curse for us. But that curse can keep its hold on him. The Apostle Peter, in the very first message that was preached after the resurrection of Jesus, said, God raised him up, loosing him from the pangs of death because it was impossible, impossible for death to keep its grip on him. And so in allowing death to feast on Jesus, where our sins were placed on him and condemned in him, Jesus took the curse for us. And with his rising, he becomes the way to a better future. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christians around the world and throughout the centuries have responded by saying, yes, yes, we do believe that. We believe that. Because you see, Jesus conquered death, and it transforms the way we think about death. In the ancient world, they buried people in these places called necropolises, these little tiny cities of death, these cemeteries. But Christians began to describe death as simply mere sleep. They've been so transformed, and Christians throughout the world have staked their very eternity on this. I think I've shown this before to you. There's a picture of this gravestone. It's very unusual. It describes a, a child who had been wheelchair-bound who died. But when he died, he was called into the presence of Jesus. That's one of the ways that Jesus destroys the work of the evil one. So that first point of implication was Christ destroyed the work of the devil by becoming embodied truth. Christ destroyed the work of the devil, allowing death to feast on him. And Christ destroyed the work of the devil by reconciling us to God. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus came on a rescue mission for people like you and me to bring us into his fold. And he died for us. And in doing so, he effected a reconciliation with God. In fact, the scriptures tell us this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was at work, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciling people like you and me back into his presence, not counting our trespasses against us. Man, is there any better news than that? For God himself to be eager not to count our sins, not to count our iniquities, not to count our trespasses against us. And he was at work in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The Apostle Paul also put it like this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, all are found in Jesus the work that Satan had done in alienating humanity from the Creator, Jesus now has destroyed that work. And everywhere around the world, he's reconciling people to himself. And I should also say, before we leave off on this time of study together, that one day, all the works of the evil one will be completely and utterly a thing of the past. The Scripture tells us in the book of Revelation, towards the end, 
this vision that John was given, given. He said, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he threw him, that is the devil, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In that same chapter, the emphasis is put on this very act. The devil who de- deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No more will they be allowed to hurt or destroy in God's good earth. So when we hear this story about how Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, it's putting us into the story of the world, of God's good creation becoming spoiled by the rebellion of the evil one, the rebellion of humanity that joined him until Christ came and affected reconciliation, affected forgiveness of sins, affected a reunion between humans and God. And so it ends, the book of Revelation, with a new creation. That same apostle who just told us about what will happen to the evil one said this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for their former things have passed away. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of this universe. There is a day coming when all the works of the devil will be a thing of the past. And I can only say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do you notice that song we sang a while ago? Come, all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable. Come, know that you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken, come, with fears unspoken, come, taste of his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb that was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come. He is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. So Mercy Hill Church, may you rest in the truth that Christ was born for you to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Those hiding of Enjoy.